welcome to Resilience Unraveled. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Thackeray. This podcast is the result of my fascination with health issues, resilience, performance, mental health, accountability, and critical thinking, along with many of the other obsessions I bump into in my life. I spend my time working with highly successful teams, organizations, and people, and this podcast introduces their remarkable stories, as well as my synthesis of the key issues, tips, and strategies to thrive in life. If you find this podcast useful, you can also find other information at qedod.com or russellthackeray.com. Stay tuned to the end for details of how to order a free ebook. Enjoy the podcast. So today I'm excited to be talking to Catherine Schaffler. And um, we've just been chatting a little while while ago about weather, and uh, Catherine tells me it's snowing in New York. So good good afternoon from a wonderfully sunny UK. How are you doing over there? (laughs) We are well, and good evening to you. Thank you so much for having me. I I really admire the goal of your program, the way you deliver your message. You can tell you really care, so I feel really honoured to be your guest today. I'm looking forward to today. And um, you're you're based in... New York, is that right, Catherine? Yes, New York, New York. Uh, I love it here. Um, despite the fact that it's almost April and it's still freezing, it makes the warm days that much more enjoyable. So we're having a good time here. And the sun is out, and that makes a big difference. Oh, it's what Even it is. when it's cold, yeah. the sun is there, and that, so it's all good. It's one of my favorite places to be. It's just got a, It's just got such a unique vibe, doesn't it? It does. It does. You can you can sort of get a you get a little of everything in New York. It's the same as same as London. Yeah. In lots of ways. Great. Well, let's make a start then. So, uh, Catherine, how would you describe yourself to someone that hadn't met you before? Uh, well, I am a New Yorker. First of all, that says a lot. And secondly, I'm a therapist. I have a practice here, and uh, I really love what I do. I have. Um, a really, 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 uh, I love the special nature of the work. It's, it's unlike anything else. And to me, I'm like, why doesn't everyone want to be a therapist? I can't believe I get to do this job. And I'm also, um, a writer. So I write for, um, different outlets like Thrive and a, a contributing writer at Time and Business Insider. And I write my own blog and, um, Basically, I just love kind of getting people thinking about the ways that they think and experience things. And I think, you know, your perspective going into the day, the week, you know, the year, it just makes such a difference. And so I like focusing on that for my own self and my own sake. And I like helping people to refocus on it for themselves. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I think in the UK, we have a slightly... I mean, well, I suppose we run into the term therapists a lot when we're watching American sitcoms and American television programs, and and we have counselors and coaches and psychotherapists and such like. But what do you do? What would you describe that a therapist does? So, um, so t- yes, technically, I'm a psychotherapist, which means um, I sit with people for about forty five minutes and we talk about anything and everything, and a therapist generally just provides kind of safe private space for you to talk out loud about the things that you're going through and dealing with and thinking about. And it's a little bit of a soundboard. I don't 
give advice so much as to just kind of allow people to um, tune into themselves in a dedicated way. So people come once each week and just kind of see what comes up. And, and do you have a particular type of person you you help in particular? And I was going to say in particular, but you know what I mean. Do you have a particular right. type of group? That yeah, you have? I work. I work a lot with women, and I work with women um, between this really wonderful kind of arc of age, typically between twenty five and thirty five. And I certainly work with men, and I love working with men also. And I work with you know people who are younger and older. But generally, I work with women between the ages of twenty five and thirty five who um, have a lot going on in really wonderful ways. They're very um, accomplished, perfectionistic typically. Um, You know, things look really great in their life from the outside. And sometimes they feel really good from the inside, but other times, you know, privately there's something wrong and um, you wouldn't necessarily know it by looking at any of these women or talking with them. But they're kind of struggling, as we all do, with a big decision or a major, you know, change. It's, it's so much happens between 25 and 35, you know, having kids, not having kids, dating, t- making different professional moves, um, just finding an apartment in New York City that's enough to get you into therapy, right? And so, you know, all of those things are touched upon and, um, also, you know, sometimes people come into therapy with a specific issue. Sometimes people are doing really well and they intend on keeping it that way through steady, honest reflection. So that's why they're in therapy. But, you know, the reasons look a little different for each person. But that's basically what I do in my work. Right. You give me lots to, to, to have a chat to you about there then. So I, I like this idea that you help people who seem to be put together well. So in other words, they seem to have this external persona that's... That's all, you know, sort of um, um, put together, as you say. But somehow inside, is they aren't quite so secure. So, are, are these people who have are, are wearing a deliberate front to face the world, or or people who are in denial about who they really are? Well, I think we all face the world with a particular kind of um, managed image, and. You know, I certainly do that, and I don't think that's an unhealthy thing to do. Um, and I love working in this space because it's one thing to pretend that you're doing well when you're not, and that's not what the people who I work with are doing. The people that I, who I work with, you know, are doing genuinely well in lots of in lots of ways, and their problems are just not visible immediately to other people. So another way to say that clinically is that I work with really high functioning people Mm. who, um, you know, and I love working in this space because what's so interesting to me, and I did crisis work for a lot of my twenties and that's really helpful too, um, to, to help people find a job when they're unemployed or to help people, um, you know, in, who are homeless defined safe and consistent reliable housing and all of those things are certainly springboards into health and wellness. Mm. Um, what I became even more interested in is what happens when people get everything that they thought they wanted and still have to contend with this sense of, but I'm not happy or, but this isn't what I thought it would feel like, or I got everything that I wanted 
but I realized I wanted it because I wanted to make this person proud of me or that person impressed, and it's not really who I am anymore. And, you know, those questions, I just love that that happens in life because it happens to all of us, and I love, you know, figuring out how to unravel that and kind of either start over or reset, you know, where you are and... I think it's a continual fluid process. So the people that I work with are certainly not trying to pretend that they're someone that they're not. I think they're more, you know, discovering as they evolve because they are pushing themselves and challenging themselves that, oh, wow, now I want this. Is it okay to get that? And how do I pivot in this way? And so, you know, we're all doing that a little bit if we're allowing ourselves to grow and, you know, that's what, that's what my work is all about is let's figure that out. I really love that. Yeah. And maybe this is an over sort of simplification, but it does seem that people these days strive for things rather than satisfaction. I wonder, I wonder if you, what you think about that. Yeah. I mean, I think we, you know, I think we all fall into certain traps, which, um, they might sound like oversimplifications, but they are because they sound really alluring. Like, oh man, if I just had this amount of money, I could mm. finally relax. Or if I just lost this, you know, 20 pounds or looked this way or, you know, um, didn't have this thing wrong with me, then I could feel this way. And those formulas are inherently broken. They don't work. We know on some level that they don't work, that money doesn't equal happiness, for example, and all that stuff. But when you're in those positions, it's like, okay, well, I'll decide if that's real after I get the thing. <laughs> we and, do. And people say money, so, money, uh, money equals happiness until you don't have any, and then you realize that money is quite useful, actually. <laughs> right, right. And, and you know, I think there is, I, I think there's a lot of truth, and we, we can all agree that uh, to a certain degree having a certain amount of health and money and all of these resources is pivotal. Like you need to hit, but once you hit critical mass with something, you know, it really doesn't matter if you have, um, I think in, in the U S all the research is around like $72,000 a year. Like once you're making more than that, people aren't any more happier than people who are making $70 million. If you can believe that, um, and so it's certainly, these things move the needle dramatically, health, money, um, relationship satisfaction, once you are out of the red zone. But, you know, once you have a, a couple of people or even just one person you can really rely on or a steady income or a safe housing environment, like then you hit a whole other tier of problems and, you know, um, someone said this, uh, Dr. Sasha Hines, who's a really wonderful coach here in New York that I love. She has a great way of saying this. And, and she says that, you know, the goal is not to not have problems because that's not being a human being. The goal is to upgrade your problems. And mm. I really like that. So one, yeah. I like working with people who have high, a really upgraded problems. <laughs> Yeah. And that's a whole other conversation because I don't like it when people say, oh, it's a luxury problem to have. Um, you know, there are people starving in the world. It's a really sensitive issue because, of course, um, privilege is such that, yes, if you're 
in a position where you don't have to think about where your next meal is coming from and you have enough access to healthcare to where you can have, you know, immunization shots and regular doctor visits and all of those things, mm-hmm. you are extremely lucky. And I think it doesn't serve anybody to say, okay, well, since I have that, I shouldn't push myself to figure out how I can have, you know, the most useful life possible because it's not fair to all of these other people who are struggling. It's sort of like, no, position yourself in such a way that you are as personally powerful as possible and use that power to help yourself and help other people. And the most wonderfully impactful people in the world are people that don't treat their you know, extra problems or luxury problems or privilege problems or however you want to say it, they don't treat those as something that don't need attention. They treat those as really important, critical um, uh, loose ends to tie up so that they can focus their attention on how to be really impactful and positive. And Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, that's a really important component of, of mental health and wellness is it's not enough to not, to just not be sick. No, real real wellness is about thriving not just avoiding sickness yeah yes and thriving looks different at different stages of anybody's life absolutely that's a great point mm-hmm. so so mm, right blimey i'm making loads of notes and um just picking some things up and you've mentioned the word perfectionistic a couple of times perhaps we can unpack that a little bit because it's one of those classic thinking areas isn't it and a few people have talked to me about this sense of perfectionism and a lack of authenticity or, you know, wanting to please people too much. What, what's your sort of take on perfectionism? Because at one level, it's a very positive thing. But when it goes out of kilter, it's so a problem. I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you said that. Because I have a different, sort of a bit of a different take on perfectionism. And, you know, there's new research out about perfectionism, just like how in the 90s everyone was like, oh, there's healthy kinds of fats. You know, I think that's what we're discovering now with perfectionism, where it's like there's health, there are healthy kinds of perfectionism. And I do think it's a really wonderful quality to approach yourself and life in, a, in such a way that what you're really, the subtext of what you're communicating is, I want whatever I do to be the highest expression of who I am. And that's definitely risky business, for sure, Um, uh, particularly to your point when you're doing it to please other people and it's not coming from a place of real internal drive. Uh, It always backfires, always, always, always. Um, And I still think, though, that, that, you know, perfectionism, the way I see it, is about managing the balance of your life in such a way that you feel like your life more often than not represents who you really are. And, um, you know, there is, someone asked me a while ago, when did you realize that you wanted to be a therapist? And I didn't know what being a therapist was until I was older. Um, and I think a lot of why we pick the jobs we pick are because of what we're exposed to and and just what we know is available to us. Mm. Um, But I do remember reading this poem about these birds, and the birds were flying in a V formation in the sky. And the poet said, I wouldn't put these birds in any other way. And I thought, you know, this was when I was really young. I was like in seventh grade. And I thought, oh, that's how I want to make people feel for my job. And I think there are a lot of ways to do that. 
but therapy is the, the best way that I've found so far. And, you know, that's just about feeling present and helping people to feel present to the moment and awake to the possibilities of their life and everything that they already have. And so, you know, perfectionism to me is just about being able to say, um, this is what I want. This is how I'm going to try to get it. And here's how I'm going to pivot and adapt when things don't go my way. Mm-hmm. And it's a personality instead of a sort of rigid set of rules. Um, it's how I it's how I see it. That's interesting because a lot of a lot of people who have a um, a problem with perfectionism see it as as a, as a very rigid set of rules in a sense that that there's no opportunity to make a mistake, and then the degree of self criticism that comes with us and then the degree of sort of almost sort of personal trauma in the sense that well if you if you can't achieve perfectionism you don't bother. So you, you get into this very sort of vicious cycle of and um, perfectionism linked to control, don't you, where where you're trying to control other people or you're trying to respond for other people. And so what en- ends up happening is that the it, the two things work against you in the sense that you're you're over controlling yourself in order to be perfectionistic rather than seeing the two things as being separate and and therefore you can use them differently with different toolkits and such like yes and perfectionism and control absolutely you're 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 right they do go hand in hand and i think that's why and i know it's it's semantics but that's why i like framing this as you know i'm i'm someone with an Personally, I don't know that I'm so perfectionistic, though I do have some perfectionistic qualities, but instead of saying I'm a perfectionist, which is overly identifying with a set of rigid um, rules and prescriptive living, Mm. I like switching that and saying I'm someone with a lot of perfectionistic qualities. So I like things to be executed cleanly, efficiently, beautifully, um, all of that stuff, but that secondary definition leaves room for other things to be there. And I think, you know, if you are someone who has a lot of perfectionistic qualities, it's not going to serve you to try to not be that, right? That That's sort of my take on it is like, okay, look, this is how you are. Your personality um, is pretty static for the most part so let's work around that instead of you trying to be a whole different person which is really hard to do let's just accept that you have perfectionistic traits and let's instead work on managing your self-talk or work on making sure you're around people who aren't imposing impossible standards upon you that trigger this perfectionism in you and let's you know sort of like accept like we are who we are if you're someone who, you know, is really perfectionistic or you're really laid back or you're really this or you're really that, trying to turn your weaknesses into strengths isn't a good use of energy, in my opinion. Instead, it's sort of accepting where you are and using your strengths to help you position yourself in the most healthy way from that place. Mm. Yeah, I'm so pleased you said that. I think we spent far too long in development terms focusing on turning a weakness, you know, something that we're, you know, score minus 50 on, you know, spending a lot of time and effort to be, you know, minus 45, as it were, you know, rather than saying, let's take a real strength and really, really work with that strength, because actually that's, that's more, that's more of your natural self, isn't it, rather than 
you know, trying to walk, you know, trying to trying to figure out how you stop something. It's much easier trying trying to work on how you make something you already do so much better, and that can minimise the effect of that. I'm doing bunny ears at the moment. A parenthesis, that sort of weakness in the first place. Exactly, and it's easier and it's more effective too. Yeah. Um, you know, even if you do try your hardest to adapt all of these different ways of thinking so that you are, you know, someone who is more accountable to yourself or more this or more that. Um, you know, Gretchen Rubin, who is an amazing writer who just wrote a book uh, that called The Four Tendencies about the way people respond to inner and outer expectations. And she says people are, are you know, um, they respond to those expectations in four different ways. And so I'll just give you one example of that. So she says some people are um, rebels. So when someone expects something of them, they question that expectation. And even when they expect something of themselves, they question that expectation. So, for example, if someone knows that by the time they're X amount of age, they're expected to be married, a rebel might say, but do I really want to get married? What is the institution of marriage all about? And under if I did get married, what would how would I get married? And so they kind of question, question, question. And that personality trait doesn't really change. And so being able to understand that that's how you're going to respond every time you have an expectation and working around that is much easier than trying to be someone who just... Um, adheres, for example, to whatever ex the expectation is, which has its pros and cons too. Mm. It, it's interesting how often you've used the sort of inner voice or the self-talk to to characterise what's going on, to characterise what's going on for someone, but also how you reset that. Is that the secret to therapy, in a sense, that this, this guided reappraisal or re-examination or recoding of inner talk? Oh, I'm obsessed with talking about self-talk. <laughs> I think, I think self-talk is is everything. It is, you know, asking yourself these things: How can you find meaningful work? How can you really connect with others? How can you laugh more, or feel hotter, or really make choices you're proud of, or whatever it is? How can you use your life in the way you most want to? Those are all really great wonderful questions to ask and answer. You know, the answers, as I talked about before, are fluid. They change as we do. And, you know, I love a moving target, which is why I love my job. I think it adds to the fun. But what I really love, love, love is that we all pretty much know what to do. It's not rocket science. We eat well. We're supposed to drink eight glasses of water a day. We're supposed to sleep for eight hours at least. You know, be nicer to our mothers. Actually use our fitness trackers. We're supposed to do all these things. And we don't do it. And I love that we don't do it. I think that's the best part about being human is that we make it messy when it doesn't have to be. We totally complicate everything. I mean, it's basic stuff. We, we don't tell people whom we love that we love them enough. We say yes when we mean no. It's all just wildly unnecessary and it's irrational and I like being able to say to myself and other people, listen, this is the deal. We're all going to get lost over and over and over again. We're all going to need to find our way back. It's the classic hero's journey. We get stuck inside the belly of the whale or in the woods. It's about fundamentally what every story is about. And the thing that gets us back 
is not this emotional whipping of ourselves. It is not saying, you need to try harder and do more. It's always self-compassion, right? So self-compassion is is the only way back. And self-compassion means compassion coming from yourself. It doesn't matter if other people say to you, but you're so wonderful, you're so smart, It's you're so talented, don't worry. It doesn't matter if you don't believe it yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you're not really communicating with yourself in a way that emphasizes a sense of compassion and understanding that, yeah, maybe it's taking you a little bit longer than you thought it did, but that's not about you. That's about the thing is harder than you thought it was. You're not weaker than you thought you were. You know, um, the thing that guides self-compassion is what you tell yourself. How do you talk to yourself about the challenges that you're facing? Mm -hmm. If you talk to yourself in this mean, punitive, nasty way, you're only going to fall deeper into the rabbit hole. And if you can find a way to guide yourself in and kind of give yourself some compassion and understanding, what you do is you approach the challenges from a solutions-oriented place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is a critical in terms of mental health and wellness. I mean, it's the cornerstone, I would say, of of wellness self-talk and a sense of flexibility no yeah so so in a sense what you're saying here is that self-compassion guides the narrative that you need to use for yourself so instead of saying oh i messed up here that means i'm rubbish i'm so stupid and the catastrophization you actually just switch to a more compassionate script that allows you to say okay i got it wrong this time you know it's about it's about being kind to yourself in a way is it it really is. And I think a lot of people are put off by that because, you know, and I totally get it. I'm not an advocate for like hugging yourself to sleep every night. And I think for a lot of people who are real go-getters and really positive, but they're just stuck, it feels like emotionally petting yourself. Mm. And there's something like, ugh, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to like sit in front of the mirror and read affirmations about how I'm smart and wonderful. It's not about that. It's about resiliency is really about the ability to be flexible and more than anything else um we misunderstand how long things take and oftentimes when we're pivoting in life and moving towards something bigger or i don't mean bigger as in like it's better by other people's standards i just mean that it, it fits you more authentically yeah um there's actually something that we're letting go of, and that means that there's loss involved and loss and grief. You know, we talk about a lot directly related to bereavement, but that's not what grief is really about. And it's about having to shed part of your identity and part of the way that you related to someone or something or a job or, you know, the idea of being whatever it is. Um, and that's hard, and it's not a linear process. And so when we say, okay, but that happened a month ago, you know, but I got fired six months ago, I should be able to feel differently now, or we broke up two years ago, or, but, you know, I turned 50, you know, three months ago. Why am I still, you know, having a little, you know, what what people often call pity party about this? and. Yeah. Because you you lost something, and you know, just being kind to yourself is is always the workaround. Self compassion is not only always the workaround; it's really the only workaround. Um, 
And, and, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because, and this is, might be being unfair, but if you move away from self-criticism, then there is a loss or a, a change to your sense of identity. And therefore, what you're talking about there is that grief becomes present. And therefore, you're motivated to go move back towards it, I suppose, because otherwise you're going to feel a sense of loss and that's going to be painful. So there's a there's a vested interest in being self-critical or focusing on your weaknesses or having negative self-talk because it must serve a purpose in some way. Russell, are you sure you're not a therapist over there on the other side of the pond? <laughs> yes, that's exactly. That is perfectly said. I love the way that you put that. It is all this this unnecessary, wildly you know irrational messiness that I was talking about earlier is is nothing more than you know a big uh, distraction just yeah. as you're saying it's a total avoidance and it's natural to avoid things I certainly avoid things in my own life and we all do it on some level and the idea is not to to touch upon the beginning of our conversation the idea is not to become someone who doesn't avoid anything it's to yeah. accept that you're going to avoid things by nature of being human so let's try to be more conscious about what you're avoiding and why so that we can approach it from a solutions-oriented place and move forward. And, you know, it's also just really holding that idea that people do not become better by making themselves feel bad. That doesn't work. And that's interesting because some of the key tenets that we deal with in resilience is this idea that you do need to face up to your challenges and that sometimes it's best not to swerve and avoid things because actually then you never you never develop the toolkit to deal with things which are small. So when they become big, that you've got the toolkit sort of practiced. So right. And sometimes you you do have to feel bad in order to be able to develop the develop the ability to deal with the problem because a lot of people talk about resilience being a sort of suit of armor. But, but that doesn't that means you can't deal with the issue. So sometimes learning to feel bad about stuff in order to learn to feel good again is the skill that's really important. Absolutely. And you know, we're not supposed to feel happy all the time. Right. That's not the point. Yes. You know, and res it's a great it's a great connection that you're bringing up, which resilience resiliency and happiness are not the same thing. Good. Yeah. And happiness and joy are also not the same thing. So you can be someone who's really joyful and be in a really unhappy moment in your life. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. And in fact, it's not only okay, it's, it's probably essential many times over, you know. So so here's the, here's the $64,000 question, I suppose. We could use that phrase today. Do you see much of a difference between the two primary genders, sort of between men and women in this whole subject area? In the area of per perfectionism? In the area of perfectionism, the inner voice, um, this this idea that uh, we need to focus on our strengths rather than weaknesses, we need to be compassionate with ourselves. And the fact that, you know, the, we're not dealing with people who are always broken, we're dealing with people who are very together, but want to be even more of themselves. Do you see that men and women are different? Do you see that there's difference? Do you, do you see a difference in the way that the solution needs to be applied differently to men and women? You know, the, the short answer is not really. I do think that men and women express perfectionistic traits differently. I think there are different pressures on men and women. And so, you know, we naturally respond to those different pressures. Um, I think women, for example, 
can sometimes become more focused on the way their bodies are perceived by others or by themselves and feel more pressure, for example, to be attractive or thin or this or that. Um, And similarly, I think women feel pressure to be pleasing and kind and nice and smile all the time and things like that. Um, But that's not to say that men get, you know, um, a free ride, right? Men certainly are just as emotional, just as layered. And I think um, men deal with a lot of pressure to be unemotional, actually, and just kind of um, successful in a, in a traditional sense and to not need things, to certainly not have emotional needs and to not be sensitive or emotionally sophisticated even sometimes. And so I think men and women encounter similar frequency and intensity of expectation and pressure they just encounter it from different sources yeah wow Catherine's been really fascinating talking to you if people would like to get hold of you or connect more with your work and read your blog how would they how would they do that so it's been wonderful talking to you too the time blew by um i the best way to connect with me is through my website which is just my name katherineshaffler.com and that's where that's where my blog lives. Um, you can connect to my Instagram account, which is also Catherine Schaffler. And I also have a newsletter that I write once a month. And it's not annoying. It's not, um, you know, this emotional petting version of a newsletter. I like <laughs> talking about mental health and emotional wellness in a way that's that's collaborative and fresh and not boring and certainly not didactic. And so, if anyone would like to connect there, I always invite people to join that community. That's also, um, you know, you can find that on on my website, katherineschaffler.com. And that's pretty much how to connect. Brilliant. Catherine, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed it. And I've read your blog, and it's written in a really practical, down-to-earth way. That's, uh, there's, there's a skill in writing that allows anybody to read it and get, get the best from it. And I think... You know, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, and, and still, still a few more blogs to go, and I've been learning tons myself, so thank you so much. Oh, that means a lot coming from you. I appreciate it very much. No problem. Well, thanks so, so much for your time, and um, hopefully our paths will cross again soon. Yes, I would love that. You take care. Okay, take care. We hope you found today's podcast useful. If you did, why not subscribe and listen to our other podcasts? We would love it if you could leave us a review. To access our resilience coaching, contact us at info at qedod.com. And finally, if you'd like to download our free resilience ebook, go to qedod.com slash free ebook. Thanks for listening.